Welcome to episode 309. Uh, this is a mini episode. It's an interview with uh, two of my favorite uh, filmmakers, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado, and they've got a uh, a new film coming out on on HBO uh, the day after Christmas. And uh, this is not a commercial endorsement. Um, this is not a paid thing. I just uh, really want people to see this film, and uh, I also wanted to ask uh, Randy and Fenton about their careers and uh, a little bit about their their personal lives. And uh, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I'm here with Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado, who are producers uh, who I mostly know for their work in uh, documentaries. I'm a big fan. Um, They have a new documentary out now on HBO that that we're going to talk about, but I'd also like to talk about um, your career, um, why you're drawn to... uh, voices of people who, uh, as, as you guys have said it in an interview, live out li- loud and uh, have been marginalized by society. Um, but most importantly, there is a documentary coming on uh, December 26th to HBO called uh, Every Brilliant Thing, starring Johnny Donahoe. Donahoe, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah, Donahoe, Donahue. Is like, Donahue. Okay. Donahue. Okay. Donahue, Donahue. Donahue Donahoe. Donatello. <laughs> it is a um, a filmed performance of the stage play he's been doing uh, off Broadway for a while, and it is about depression, suicide, um, genetics, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. um, and finding things to live for, things to get us through those times, embracing. This is my take on it. Um, what what is there to look forward to in 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 the world? Um, and he writes these things down, which is the the what the title is based on. He he starts a list of things he thinks are brilliant, and um, I was in tears ten minutes into it when oh. he was doing the thing about. And I don't cry. <laughs> I don't cry very much. Um, just when he was talking about his dog. It's one of the most moving documentaries I've I've ever seen, and it's so in the wheelhouse for my listeners um, that uh, I was like, we have to do a, a mini episode and get these guys in here, even if so I can just <laughs> meet them because I'm, I'm such a fan. Um, t- tell, tell the listener uh, more about Every Brilliant Thing. Well, you know, th- thanks so much. It's really nice to be here. And it's funny, as you were introducing it, it, we often talk about this film as based on a play about depression and suicide. And yet, really, I think the film and the play is ultimately very life-affirming. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in trying to create the poster, HBO came up with, a, I feel, a great line um which is a list for life and that 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 uh this list for life that this kid starts writing when he's a kid to help his mother with her depression is something that i sort of feel i could do with one myself you know this idea that it's about the little things in life that make it is the little things in life that make life living the ordinary things not necessarily the big uh milestones but these you know um 
And so the, 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 even though, yes, it's about depression and suicide, it's really also about joy and wonder and exuberance, uh, actually. And, and so ironically, even though it's about such a dark subject, mm-hmm. the film is kind of plays very funny. Um, oh, definitely. He is, he has a great sense of humor and, uh, very dry, very dark. And that's, um, that, that brings comfort to, um, not only to myself, but to people like our listeners who go through very, very dark times and need to know that they're not alone, need mm. to be reminded that there is good in the world, that there is hope. You may not feel it at this moment, but, you know, think about that, the the smell of the cottage uh, that you went to as a kid and when bacon was cooking in the morning, you know, the, those little life mm. rafts when you're feeling uh, like you are never going to find an island. Um Give me a couple of uh, one of the things we do on the show is we do a list of fears and loves and sometimes uh-huh. we just improvise them. But right. um, give me two each of, hmm. of kind of sublime things that that you love. Hmm. Um, drag queens. I love drag queens. And you guys produce uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> yeah. you've, you've known RuPaul since you were students. Yeah. Yeah. Since uh, certainly since my first year, couple of years in New York, and Randy and I were, we'd left film school actually when we met Rue for the first time. Yeah, shortly after leaving film school. But you know, it was, it was one of those moments that is just, it's, you see someone and see something, it's just instant, and you just mm-hmm. recognize in that moment that there's someone who will change your life or who you identify as really significant. And I think for both of us, it was immediate recognition of this sort of, oh, you know, we've said before, oh, he was always a star and it was about waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. But I think it was, I think in truth, to be more accurate about it, I think we just recognized this, this, this person who was incredibly powerful. And it it wasn't so much the stardom, I think. It, it was this just... I mean, Rue is, a, is an incredibly wise and centered person and mm-hmm. very has inspired certainly me and I think both both of us actually in our work and careers. So he's a figure who lives life out loud and is larger than life, but also very grounded and very, um, very wise uh, person. So it would be fair fair to say that the, the spirit of people is kind of what... Um, you you find uh, compelling uh, yeah and i think you can sometimes recognize that in someone before you even speak to them mm-hmm. i I, you I, know, I don't know how i couldn't explain it to you but it's just that sort of you can just something happens in a non-linguistic way you just recognize mm-hmm. that you know yeah. the energy force yes. yeah. what is it uh, if you can be a little more detailed about drag queens that that you love um and you guys did not do Paris is burning. Did you? We didn't, but we love Paris is oh my burning. God. It's I, like our Bible. Um, the first time I saw that, I was in. I'm cis, hetero, and uh, I could not. Uh, I, first of all, I didn't understand how have I gone this far in my life and had no idea. You know, a theater right. student, liberal, lived in big cities, and I had no idea there was this whole subculture. Uh, about drag queens and mm-hmm. and um, the 
It's, it just, it's funny. Yeah. We, it, it, it's funny because we actually, you know, producing Drag Race, we actually make sure every season that the new contestants have seen um, Paris. Paris is Burning. It's like required. It's just like Mommy Dearest is required viewing as well. <laughs> um, but I think, I think, you know, and uh, there is a connection, weirdly, <laughs> between every brilliant thing and drag queens, not just because drag queens would be on my bril- list of brilliant things, but because, um, y- you know, drag queens, uh, sort of so many of them, they, they don't take life too seriously. They find the joy in life. They, they embrace the colors. And I, I do think that Johnny and, uh, the playwright, uh, Duncan McMillan, I think that's part of what, you know, the inspiration they draw in every brilliant thing. It's, it's, it is about finding hope in Mm. the colors of life. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there is no, um, for people who are suffering depression, there's no sort of, there's no, there's no one thing that, you know, can, can sort of, uh, um, pull us from the depths of darkness and depression. But it is comforting to be reminded of the colors of life. It's comforting to, to kind of experience uh, a connection with other people who, who, um, y- you know, sort of not just suffer from depression or, but understand the darkness. And you, you know what I mean? So I think mm-hmm. that, I think drag queens are, you know, shamanistic in that, in that sense of they, they, they know the darkness because they're, you know, it takes a lot to even be able to live that life, but they choose to recognize and embrace the lightness and yeah. the light. And so, um, and I love that they take the very thing that is their hurdle in life and turn it into art mm-hmm. or a picket sign or a, or a bullhorn or, you know, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it is that, mm-hmm. that, that to me, I think is, is what touched me so much about, uh, every brilliant thing is he took, um, this family hereditary i'm assuming it's hereditary uh, in him who who knows but it runs in his family and um and even if he didn't suffer from it just having a mother who was depressed and suicidal mm-hmm. um how he took that and said i'm going to find the beauty in life instead of saying i didn't get a childhood uh-huh mm-hmm. the, the, the other the other thing about this this play is is the way they, you know, we made the TV adaptation of it. And part of our job as directors and documentarians was to sort of find a way to bring it to television without and, and kind of honor its authenticity. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary theatrical experience. It it's is the, it's a, the most intimate thing I've ever seen because he does it in the round yeah. and he involves members of the audience. Yeah. And they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's unlike anything that I've that I've seen before. And I was a little skeptical going in because uh-huh. I'm like, oh, a Broadway thing about depression. You know, I didn't. I think if you guys hadn't been attached to it, I don't know if I would have watched it. And I and I 
would have missed out on a really, really great piece of art. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you Thank said, you. you know, what one of the great fears, one of my great fears is audience participation. <laughs> so it's like, you're going to go and see a play about depression and it's all audience participation. I was like, no, you know, I, I was like, I do not want to go see this. And immediately on entering the, the fact it's in the round was also a brilliant idea because you're not, it's not that traditional divide between the stage and the audience. You're in the round. And Johnny is so amazing because he has some ability. He makes it look so easy. He's it a looks great sort improviser. Of, right. Because there has to be improvisation when yeah. you're picking out a different audience member each night. Right. And is able to somehow set that whole room immediately at ease. Absolutely. So that feeling of like, oh, that, that terror, that terror, that fear of audience participation actually quickly gets set aside. And, and I don't think anyone in that room on the, certainly the, when we taped it had that fear mm-hmm. that understandably, I think many people have of, you know, now you're going to be singled out and am I going to be good enough in that moment? It wasn't like that at all. It felt much like a room full of like-minded people sharing something through Johnny uh, and, and Duncan through this brilliant play about about something that actually, even though we don't always talk about it, it's something that is universally relatable because you may not yourself suffer from depression, but chances are you know someone who does. Mm-hmm. And well, so it is a universal mm-hmm. experience. And yet, ironically, not something really it seems that we go to great lengths to avoid talking yeah. about it. And, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's universal in that it's really about a hurdle. It's about something that makes you question the value of going on. You know, mm. could be anxiety, could be trauma, could be you know, a health issue. Um, I, I almost feel like the, the, uh, the fact that it was depression is just happens to be what this, right. what this thing is a, is about. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that's how I felt watching it. Uh-huh. Um, and I live with depression. I've lived with depression for, you know, decades, but, um, it, yeah, it's, it's great. And, and how he managed to, Make it not feel like a performance, right. even though it was a a performance. It's um, I don't know. I just uh, well, I, I think it. you could say it is a performance, but I think it's so authentic and so genuinely felt from the stages of writing to the way it's delivered. Mm-hmm. It 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 isn't like a it it's real. Mm-hmm. You know, it it really is real. It's it, yeah. I mean. We saw many performances. We saw many performances before we filmed, and we actually, uh, our film is a combination of three performances, mm. each one equally magical. It was not like we, we needed to film three performances to get a good one. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, and, and not to give too much away, but, but it is audience participation, and some members play key roles. They're the guy like, that played so, his father. Yeah, they you play, must have just been beside yourself in the editing room when you saw that footage. We were, but mm-hmm. I, I got to say, all three performances had three amazing 
men play his father. I mean, it's strange. No, you be you honest, know. the other two were shit. No, no, no. They we could do we could do a remix. We could no. They were they were, um, they were almost as good. No, they were yeah. there. I would say yeah. you, know, you, you know it was it was a struggle to pick one. I guess is what I'm saying because it's it's strange. He creates. Uh, a sense of ease and comfort, and people rise to the occasion. Yeah, a sense of safety. I think yeah. it's a safe, yeah. safe space. And, and if this is sounding a little uh, unclear to uh, listeners, uh, what Johnny would do is he would say, "You know, this thing happened to me when I was seven years old. I was in the car with my father. Sir, would you mind playing my father? Um, would you uh, pretend you're driving me to school and you're concerned that such and such?" And so then he would improvise this little thing. And sometimes Johnny would make an adjustment and say, "No, you know, maybe you're." A little you're a little mm-hmm. upset with with me here and uh and it was um yeah it's just a beautiful and, unique and they are truly people off the street you know even the three performances we did we didn't advertise we you know we literally there are people who walked in off the street and um um, and and the other the interesting thing about this someone plays his father someone plays the girl he falls in love with um and he he casts it. He stands in the theater as people are coming in, and he just looks and scans the people who are coming in. Mm-hmm. And he decides just by watching people who he's going to pick as his father and who mm-hmm. he's going to pick as his girlfriend. It's, mm-hmm. um, Which, by the way, made it a challenge to shoot because it's in the round, <laughs> and so these characters would be, for each different performance, sitting in a different place. Mm-hmm. There's no way of knowing where they were going to sit. You know, right. um, so, and we talked about well, do we ask them to move and put them in certain seats? But it was like, no, you can't do that because you are then kind of interrupting the authenticity of this moment, and you're sort of uh, interfering with it. And and he was, they were so right about that that we just had to go with it, and um, worked out just great. Yeah, we you know. we all the cameras were hidden. I mean, yeah. we. You see a camera once or twice. Yeah, right? but we but, really like our job was to not be there. Yeah, like that. It was. You, you did a good job because I, I, you know, I, I'm, sometimes I'm looking for continuity, or I uh-huh. want to see where the audience changes, or I want to see where the camera is, and uh, I, I really didn't see anything. Um, I would like if there's anything uh, more that you'd like to talk about. Every brilliant thing it, it debuts uh, the day after Christmas on yep. HBO. Um, do you know, happen to know what time? I imagine in the evening. Nine o'clock. East Coast. East Coast. Yes. Nine o'clock. Okay. I think. I think. Okay. I'm sure people can find. Check it your list, local listings. Check, <laughs> check the internet. It's a series of tubes and wires. Um, I would love to, you know, doing some research uh, about you guys. Oh, the other documentary uh, I wanted to. Uh, say that i loved was a uh, maple thorpe look at the pictures oh thank you um you two met in the village in the 80s um which obviously was the heyday of uh robert, robert right. maple thorpe right um also really kind of ground zero for aids yeah. um, mm-hmm. what i don't know what questions to ask you necessarily but paint a picture for me of what it was like being in the village as this bomb is exploding. And well, that's a really—I mean, 
Randy and I met at film school and uh, it was certainly my first few days in New York. I'm from England originally. And um, I think what struck us was, I mean, we were very much in the East Village and didn't really go that much to the West Village. And it, was, it wasn't that there was a divide, but there were, they were different worlds and slightly Would you, would different... you meet under the viaduct like West Side Story? <laughs> <laughs> right. They were just Still slightly was... different generations, I suppose, yeah. right? You know, yeah. West Village was like the big gay area and East Village wasn't any less gay necessarily, but it was more sort of artists. It was this sort of... We were conscious of this artistic explosion. Like, you know, uh, I remember meeting Martin Burgoyne, who was the designer who designed Madonna's record cover. He was always at the pyramid in those ripped jeans. Mm -hmm. And there was John <laughs> Sachs and Ethel Eichelberger and in due course, Lady Bunny and RuPaul. They're all these amazing performers. And it was just this incredible, um, like creative, I mean, I think at the time you didn't necessarily see it that way. You look back on it through slightly rose-tinted glasses, you know, but it was an incredible creative explosion of uh, uh, painters, not just performers, painters as well, right? Um, yeah, totally. I mean, there were... Kenan the, Rains, the poet with the snake. Yeah, there, there were um, all the 8BC and the Limbo Lounge. There were all these art spaces. And so yeah. the East Village was filled with... It was gender fluid. It yeah. was gender... Fuck, I don't know if we can say that. Yeah, you can say it, it was, was okay. Queer, gender right. queer and and it was so so it was this time where anything was possible and but uh, the West Village it was also the time that that at it was the beginning of the AIDS crisis and it right. started out as this thing that that no, it was like a mystery. And and it was called so gay cancer originally. It was called gay cancer, and it, it right. seemed, you know, initially it seemed sort of far away, and it didn't seem, you know, nobody knew what was what it was about mm. to become. And as it became that, it just it was it was kind of extraordinary. It was it was truly devastating because. It, it was this time in New York where it seemed like anything was possible and artists were everywhere making stuff and suddenly people were getting sick and suddenly this other thing started to happen. And, mm. and often dying within days. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just sort of plucked out, almost like um, bad analogy, but, but like the Rhapsody, just people disappeared, mm -hmm. you know, very quickly. And uh, I'm sure you've seen the documentary on Fran Lebowitz when she talks about how you could see, you know, you go to the ballet mm. and be able to compare, oh, this year, it here's what is not there because mm. that person who had mm -hmm. a part of this is no longer alive and she said you could you could see mm -hmm. the the art losing all these um bu brilliant imaginative uh, people and it was also at a time where the actual physical landscape of new york city was changing it was a, a time when it was sort of the beginning of the sort of gentrification mm -hmm. and so so you know 
people were dying and people were slowly starting to be forced out because people could no longer, you know, the East Village was, you know, becoming less affordable. And so mm. artists were, were, you know, being forced further downtown. And, you know, it just, it went from brightness to to sadness and mm. darkness. Randy and I lived on... Ninth Street between B and C, and for many years there was this massive, old, fantastic building, the Cristadora building, on the corner there of Avenue B and Ninth Street, and it overlooked the park. And I can't remember what year it was, but after many years of being empty and abandoned and boarded up, it was renovated and sold off as luxury condominiums, prompting this gentrification riot in Tompkins Square Park and. And so you could really see the whole neighborhood change from it was a crack-infested neighborhood. You know, this was the time of the crack epidemic. And it sort of began to turn around into this sort of um, luxury condos and luxury apartments. And that was one of the great telling moments for, like, was meeting, uh, going to Maplethorpe's Loft, uh, 45 Bond Street, that uh, Joel Sheffs had bought, um, God knows how much she paid, but it's like, you know, it's now worth $15 million, mm-hmm. you know, just an insane amount of money. Um, Did you know uh, Patty as well? No. Okay. Um, but no. you knew Robert? No. Oh, okay. We, no. we, we sort of, see, the thing is that we were there. We were, we, we weren't a different generation, but well, we were, we were young. We were younger. He was famous. And we were, just, we were, we were we, significantly yeah. younger and, and not famous, but okay. we would be out and about. So we would be so, at the Michael Todd room when some of his photographs were right. hanging on the so wall. So you were very aware of. Oh, yeah. Of him. Oh, yeah. yeah but yeah. he was already, he was already famous, right? Yes. I mean, uh, outside the gay community. Um, yes. I think he was, he yes. was a recognized, successful, Artist. I mean, this was pre the the kind of scandal that defined him in many people's eyes, you know, which which wasn't actually ironically until after his death. But he was still a name. It was the sort of same time as like it's so weird that Madonna and Maplethorpe, you know, were very uh, on sort of similar fame trajectories, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they both seemed to come from downtown, and and they were both brilliant at branding themselves. Mm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Patty Smith, she's the Patty I'm referring to, to listeners, um, uh, lived with Robert for a long time. And uh, her book, she she talks about how relentlessly he yeah. promoted himself and how just single-minded he was. Yeah. And um, uh, that, yeah, I, I loved uh, your, your documentary uh, about him. Uh, what are some other documentaries that people might know you guys from i was talking to randy uh, before we started recording and saying that probably my favorite one that you guys did is 101 rent boys that was where i first became aware of you guys because when the credits rolled um i was just like who who did this (laughs) who showed me this world and it's about um um you describe it um well it's a film where we interviewed 101 um, rent boys or sex workers. Um, and it was, we made it before, it was like pre uh, um, Grinder or 
pre-online hooking up. So, you know, it was back in the time when people act, actually walked the streets. You had to get in your car and drive to get your dick sucked. Yes. Back when we were kids. <laughs> back when, yeah. Um, um, and, and back then, the place to do that was around Santa Monica Boulevard. And that was, that whole project came about because it was around the time when Fenton and I um, moved to Los Angeles and we were trying to get projects made and we would, our office was right around the corner from Santa Monica Boulevard and whenever we would go to kind of pitch an idea to someone, we would drive along Santa, Santa Monica Boulevard to the, to the mm. west side and we would see these guys and we would joke about like, you know, we're doing the exact same thing. You know, they're, they're doing their thing out on the street and we're going to a meeting to pitch our ideas. And then that's when we sort of cooked the idea of like, wow, we should talk to them and we should, we should make a sort of up, up with prostitutes film. Like that was the original intention. The original mm -hmm. intention was we have so much in common with these guys. Nobody ever, actually has conversations with them in a non-judgmental way and in a way where people can connect with them and uh, their humanity. Um, it didn't f totally turn out that way because I guess what we didn't really anticipate was um, just, you know, there was just so much sadness and so much darkness that's, and that's it, what i loved about it though is you didn't shy away from it no you didn't try to put a bow on it yeah and, and and it just was so well to me felt authentic and it it really was i mean we like it's, we literally and we you know it it was and it you know it were it, the reality is what guided what 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 we ended up making I guess I just wish some of the stories weren't as, um, you know, as dire or sad. And there were so many great people we met, some of whom we still know. Mm -hmm. um, but, and there was also humor in it. There was yes. uh, some lightness in it. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, the, 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 there was a lot of, yes. a lot of sadness and, and, uh, I don't even know what the word is. And, and, and we filmed all the interviews because there were all these hotels along Santa Monica Boulevard. Yeah. So we would film the interviews in hotel rooms in the Santa Mo and mm -hmm. along Santa Monica Boulevard. And, and, um, we actually, the, another sort of surprising and interesting thing about this is we were making another film at the exact same time, which is a film called The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which is mm -hmm. about Tammy Faye. Another great documentary. Uh, Mesner mm -hmm. and, um, so during the day we would be filming with Tammy Faye and then at night we'd be filming with these streetwalkers. I mean, there was a sort of, uh, funnily enough, a sort of, um, because one of our ideas that was the title 101, I think 101 Dalmatians was out yes. at the time. So yes, that's it sort was. of where the title hmm. came from. <laughs> and then we were like, well, you know, the golden rule in documentaries is you don't pay people. And we were like, they should be paid. It's their story. We should pay them for their stories. We don't want to have sex with them, but let's pay mm -hmm. them for their stories. And so many of those stories, and Randy's right, much, there's a tremendous amount of heartache and tragedy in a lot of them. But at the same time, they were so insightful about people. They really mm -hmm. understood people. They had a wisdom 
-hmm. beyond many shrinks and psychiatrists and so-called professionals. They just knew about people and what makes people tick and what their needs are. And and often it wasn't sex. It was Uh often companionship and... Mm people just carrying around just people wanting to be heard and seen yeah or held just people feeling so lonely and um so ironically it was there was something quite spiritual about it yes which making a film about tammy faye was also she was a very spiritual person but these hustlers were also kind of really spiritual people in the way they Mm -hmm. sort of administered you know um so yeah. uh, and another thing I would like to uh, ask you about is you you did a documentary about Monica Lewinsky and uh, I don't know if it was you guys that referred to her as um, kind of the the original um, person being piled on yeah, by like. uh, slightly before the internet yeah. I guess right yeah I think Monica's like. She said as much in her TED talk, right? That she was the original. The ground zero for public shaming. Right. Mm -hmm. She sort of, she, yeah, she authored that. She, she has described herself as that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and certainly when we made our film with her, which was for HBO, uh, Monica in Black and White, it was, it was, she still wasn't in a place where she could, talk about what happened to her like it's really been in the past three years it was a ted talk she did a few years ago that she really has fully kind of embraced not embraced what what's happened to her but just has understood it and been Mm. able to walk with her with her head held high Mm. and to talk about it in um in in a really open and um smart way when we made our film i mean she could talk about what happened but it was still so raw well and also people wouldn't let her no own the experience or wouldn't let her they were so and people she's still people are still very polarized about it and have their judgments but they wouldn't let her redefine herself or explain herself and she's so she really just wanted to be heard uh, and um, people wouldn't listen. I remember one of the most painful experiences was at the Television Critics Association where HBO presented the film with a Monica and they also were presenting right after it the uh, In Memoriam, the 9-11 film with Rudolph Giuliani and it was such a hostile room of critics and journalists. And one person actually asked, and she she wrote a brilliant Vanity Fair piece around the time of her TED Talk, and she begins the Vanity Fair piece by referencing this very moment where one journalist says, why don't you crawl away and die? That was a question from the audience. People just know the sensational headlines about that story. Like, you know, the details get lost. Mm -hmm. And so she hasn't, she's, she's made mistakes and she, she owns those. But, um, but there's a lot more to the story than just the sensational headlines of it. 
I want to go back to uh, the loves. So you love drag queens. Uh, Fenton, you've had a good 25 minutes to think about uh, yours. <laughs> well, I don't know. And the, uh, more de- the more detailed, the better. Yeah. It's all in the details. Well, no, I mean... Um, just trying to pay. I love Saturday afternoons. Like, well, you could say that's not very specific, but I, there's no question in my mind that some of my happiest times have been on a Saturday afternoon. It's that sort of few hours when nothing is really expected of you, when you can just enjoy the moment. And I just have, I have this very strong memory of uh, coming home from boarding school when I was a kid and it was a Saturday and my mother said, oh, let's go to the sweet shop. And we walked along the road to the village and um, I can't remember if you have them here, but they're like um, these hard candies that are like, they have a sort of pear type, they're like in a, they're like pear drops. Anyway, I just mm. remember walking along the, the, the river eating these pear drops and I can remember it so clearly. And it's not like anything said anyone to anything. It wasn't, it was just this moment, but it was this sort of magical uh, moment that I just remember with great fondness. Mm. And, and and it just seems to sort of cast a sort of, ha- it has a halo effect on every Saturday afternoon yes. since. We have a variety of surveys that uh, listeners fill out, um, you know, ones where they share their deepest secrets, uh, things that turn them on, um, traumas that have happened to them, things they love, um, sublime moments in their life that have touched them and of the thousands i've read i've never read a happy moment where it was somebody getting something materialistic it was always a the day my dad took me out of school and we went fishing or Mm -hmm. it's all about these things where they just were present with another person or at peace with themselves and nature Right, it's not necessarily that anything necessarily happens. It's not necessarily anyone needs to say something to anyone. It's just this sort of, exactly, it's just yeah. this moment. Um, yeah. Anything else that you guys would like to uh, talk about, share, promote? I don't think that there's a lot of mainstream um, media attention or... Uh, a programming that deals with um, depression or things that block people from moving forward. Um, I don't, you know, it's like Fenton said earlier, like people would rather avoid either talking about it or, you know, making a whole program about it. So we, we feel really blessed that HBO was kind of enthusiastic not only about making every brilliant thing, but are putting it on and putting it on during the holidays, which is kind of genius because, you know, like Mm. it's the perfect time. And then the fact that this is actually kind of uplifting. And and so I really hope people get to see it and they get to share it with other people because, um, you know, not just... It's a great show for people not only who experience depression but i think as it's as important to people who don't yeah agreed you know? agreed yeah i there's a, a saying we have on the podcast uh, thinking you understand clinical depression because you've experienced situational sadness is like thinking you understand italy because you've been to the olive garden 
that's brilliant that's a brilliant thing oh that's 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 yeah, great yes there a lot of people don't understand the the difference that, between uh-huh. the two mm-hmm. and um i think the mm. uh, johnny's thing uh really should be seen by everybody um fenton randy uh so great to meet you and and talk to you and i look forward to uh future things you haven't have uh, coming out and um for the listeners every brilliant thing hbo the day after christmas thanks guys thanks thank you thank you well i hope you guys enjoyed that as much as i did um like i said this is just a mini episode so a regular uh episode will be up as usual on friday and uh we'll see you then thanks for listening